Welcome back to the Defense Tech Podcast. I'm Civilian Sydney. As someone with no government or military experience, I wanted to create this podcast in order to gain a full understanding of what defense contracting is, how it's evolving, and the issues it's currently facing in the U.S. In this series, I'm talking with experts who will help me take a look behind the scenes of innovation with a spotlight into Microelectronics Commons. This week, I have the pleasure of talking to Tim Griff, who is the founder and CEO of NSTXL. Tim has over 20 years of experience building and managing nonprofit technology associations and networks. NSTXL is the third organization he has helped to launch and build, each of which focus on scaling and commercializing innovative technology through policy and public-private partnerships. Tim has spent his entire professional career operating at the intersection of business, policy, and politics, including directing record-breaking campaigns, convening and managing numerous coalitions, and leading successful policy efforts at the national, state, and local levels. Tim holds a master's in public policy from the Sanford Institute at Duke University and a bachelor's degree in government from the University of Texas, Austin. I hope you enjoy this episode with CEO Tim Griff. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the podcast. Um, Thank you for joining us. How's your week going so far? Uh, Thanks for having me. It's going great. It's Tuesday. Sweet. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, I know you have 20 plus years of experience in the nonprofit industry. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about your background and what led you to start NSTXL? Sure. So, I mean, from very early on, I knew I was very interested in nonprofit work um, and doing things that had some sort of uh, social motivation or social element to it. And that led me to the nonprofit world coming out of undergraduate. Um, And so every every job I had, um, save one, was in the nonprofit space. And what I really liked about the nonprofit was its attachment to mission. Um, There's a sort of a a thinking about why do you want to get up in the morning and, and do what it is that you do? And having some sort of reason greater than myself to do that was always attractive to me. And so over the years, I was very fortunate to work at a, at a number of both small and large nonprofits um, around primarily climate and energy issues. And that really got me interested in interacting at what I call through sort of the intersection of, of business policy and politics, uh, which impacts a lot of what we do. And of course, there's a lot to do with what NSTXL does dealing in, in government acquisition and technology development. And so I really learned over the you know now almost 25 years of, of uh, existing in the nonprofit space that this is where I really like to be. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it allows you to you know, do good and, and do well in life. And, and that's really important. I, don't, I think people underestimate how important it is to actually really like what you do between the hours of, you know, nine and whenever you go home at night. And if you're not, if you're not locked into that, I think uh, life isn't quite as good. So I'm, I'm very satisfied with the, the path I've chosen in life. And I don't really see myself ever stepping fully out of the nonprofit sector. Yeah. Other than NSTXL, of course, what has been one of your favorite roles previously? So I did, I was a, a, a lobbyist and an advocate um, for the, the environment and energy community in Washington, D.C. for a long time. And I thoroughly enjoyed that role. It mm-hmm. was fascinating to uh, spend a lot of time on the Hill talking to policymakers, uh, but then also talking to constituents and, and businesses about what do we need to do to address our challenges in energy. And what was so interesting to me about energy as a, as a sector 
is it's one of the most heavily regulated sectors of the economy. And so from a business standpoint, it's not good enough that you have a sound business model and that you have what you perceive to be a market or demand signal for your product. If you can't fit within the regulations set at the federal, state, and local level, Mm -hmm. then you're never going to succeed. And again, it's that intersection of, of business and policy that always really kept my attention. And that's where you know energy played um, a heavy role in, in getting into NCXL because the first OTA that we uh, managed was for energy-related technologies. And it was the blending of that energy network that I had built over a decade working on climate energy issues with a, with a real focus on what the, the adaptation and the, the business and tech play was in dealing with climate change that got me that link into providing some insight and guidance and building a model to help the government find better energy technologies. Yeah, that's super cool. So coming back to NST Excel, I know it's, you know, it's a nonprofit membership consortium that works to deliver innovative technologies to the warfighter in a quick, efficient, and cost-effective manner. So what inspired you to take a different approach to consortium management, like as you've done with NST Excel? Uh, so it really came down to looking at what was in existence at the time that NSTXL was formed and and how existing consortia ran. Because uh, consortiums have been around since 2000. They were not a new concept when we got started back in 2014. Um, but when we did the research and I really looked into what was happening, you know, there were these very clandestine, closed off, insular, membership-driven groups where if you didn't pay to get behind the firewall, you had no idea what the opportunities were for you. And that always seemed kind of antithetical to me to how innovation is actually done and and being more of an open source platform and letting people see what problems there are to be solved, particularly smaller companies that are either pre-revenue or on their series A, series B round of of fundraising. If that's where the cutting edge technologies are and that's what the government wants, Mm -hmm. those people aren't gonna start throwing money and valuable resources and, and time at, you know, on the off chance that there's something there for them opportunity wise. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of what NSTXL introduced to the consortium world was just based on bringing honestly true elements of how innovation works. Because a lot of the, the existing consortium were set up by people who used to sit in government and then just switch seats. And they they were not they had not done a startup themselves. They had not mm-hmm. spent any time uh, dealing with you know fundraising and and growing et cetera. And didn't have a, a good beat on how business was done, particularly smaller business. And so if that's the audience you want to attract, you have to really understand how they operate, what's important to them. And so NSTXL was the first one that really brought that insight into what does it look like when you're trying to build a business and you're you're trying to decide on who's your customer going to be. And you have on one hand sort of a more traditional for-profit where you're just selling it to industry. And on the other hand, you have government, which is oftentimes very obtuse and and it's hard to crack in and it's hard to know what's going on. And it's just, it's a different language. It's a different speed. And so part of our, our job, and it has been from day one, is to create that environment that's more conducive to any business to be able to effectively engage, compete, but then also deliver a solution. Mm-hmm. It's got to be that that engagement across the full life cycle. And that's something that, you know, NSTXL did first. Um, and I think that we're the ones that still do it the best. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. 
Yeah, I've also noticed, you know, and discovered that we place kind of a huge emphasis on collaboration, which you touched on, like connecting government with industry, traditional performers with non-traditional performers, nonprofit with for-profit. How does this element of collaboration contribute, in your opinion, to the success of the U.S. government as a whole? So it really comes down to um, spreading out the risk and then allowing each sector to play to its strengths. So I hear a lot that you know the government is not risk tolerant, which is not true any more so than saying you know a university is not risk tolerant or a company is not risk tolerant. You know, there's yeah. this sort of idea that risk has to be looked at at one specific point in time, and then if one mm -hmm. sector is more risk tolerant than the other, then they're the ones that are risk tolerant and no one else can tolerate risk. Mm -hmm. And what's funny to me about the, the myth that the government has no tolerance for risk is when you look at, well, what's riskier than funding a startup? Funding basic research. So when you kind of go back through mm -hmm. the idea thread, funding basic research is one of the lowest ROIs there is dollar for dollar, just because you're really looking at, you know, the fact that studying how light transmitted through pond scum had a role to play in modern touchscreen technology. There are so many connections and so much money and time and resources that is spent to get from point A to point B there. That's really risky. And with a lot of basic research money so coming from the federal government, they're incredibly risk tolerant because they're funding universities to do this stuff. And so the reason you want to create a collaborative environment is it allows each player within the value stream to play to their strengths. And you know, no one is necessarily an expert or no sector is an expert at going from ideation all the way to delivery of, of a concept across an entire technology category. There are times when you need the federal government to play. There are times when you need universities and research institutions to sort of take the lead. And there are times that you really want industry in there. And, that, and that's a mix of, of sort of large traditionals and small non-traditionals and startups and everything in between. And it's just a matter of creating an environment that's conducive to allowing each member of the product to play to their strengths. That's going to get you the best, most effective outcome. And that's that's primarily what our philosophy and our, our platform is built upon. Hmm. Cool. That's a really good answer. Um, I like your example with the, what did you say, the light through algae or something like that? So obviously a big topic of conversation in America right now, and for sure within NSTXL is the chips crisis here in the United mm -hmm. States. How have you personally seen this issue bleeding into government contracting and our work here? Yeah, so sort of when you go back through history, there are times where, you know, the, the economy helped us make a decision to do something which made a ton of sense at the time. Mm -hmm. And no one could have necessarily foreseen how that would bite us coming back. And so the offshoring of microchip development manufacturing technologies, uh, that really ended up hurting us because back in mm -hmm. the 90s, a lot of that was offshored to Southeast Asia. And now there's sort of a different geopolitical dynamic there. And what COVID really helped expose is how fragile supply chains can be. It's from yeah. pharmaceuticals to you know uh, raw materials, but in particular microchips. And as we become increasingly dependent upon chips in everything we do, not just our you know uh, phones, smartphones, and computers, but it's cars, it's refrigerators, it's ovens, mm -hmm. it's uh, you know, major appliances, it's medical equipment. It doesn't matter you need microchips and to not have that capacity here 
is a huge, huge threat to national security and also just to the economy. Mm-hmm. And so you know, the, um, the government was always at the leading edge of helping to develop the microchip and semiconductor industry in the first place. Then there was great collaborations, great models of collaborations in the 80s and 90s on how that got done. And so we, we already know that there is a successful game plan for doing this. So in order to, to do that with chips, the Commons program is, is a big part of the Chips and Science Act and is the, the first part that's getting going to actually start to deliver technology to not only you know, re-onshore our microchip manufacturing capacity, but also train that industrial base necessary to produce these at scale. And so this collaborative model has been really important because for the, for the current chips and that next generation chips, it goes back to what I was talking about. You, you need government funding and you need government engagement. You've got to have universities involved and you've got to be doing some basic research looking at the next gen. And you've got to have industry there as well playing and helping to bring these innovations to scale and produce these chips at scale. And if we mm-hmm. don't have all three of these partners engaging, we're not going to be successful. And Commons has created that environment uh, through the hubs in order to create that collaborative environment that we need to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a perfect segue into talking about, you know, the Microelectronics Commons program. Can you tell us more about what it's been like to see the launch of this unfold kind of from your perspective as like CEO, like a big picture? Yeah, it's it's been a, a very wild ride so far. Mm-hmm. I remember that the, uh, the, the CHIPS Act passed uh, uh, during the Microelectronic uh, integrity meeting out in Indianapolis. <laughs> and I was actually on stage doing a panel about smarts and people's phones were going off in the audience and the buzz <laughs> sort of started and the CHIPS Act had been passed. Mm-hmm. And that created a huge buzz. And I don't think at that time I had a really good level of comprehension of just how quickly this was going to move um, mm-hmm. and how and how impactful and, and how big it was going to be. So starting almost immediately after that, uh, we started working with our partner at SWC Crane um, and started working with OUSD uh, to, to figure out, you know, how can this be structured? Um, what's the best way to set it up? And then we started working on, you know, the paperwork process, had to compete the hubs. But the, the, the great part about how Commons was set is that it has been a true partnership from day one. And it's not just a partnership between industry, academia, you know, nonprofits and, and government. It was also a nice collaboration from within government of the technical program offices, legal departments and contracting departments to get on the same page about how we could use OTAs, in this case, the smarts OTA and, and the unique structures that you can build within those to really custom build a program that fits the needs of the commons to set up the best collaborative environment to deliver on some of these advanced technological needs for microchips. Yeah, yeah, super cool. So I know that the the goal with commons is kind of that after five years, the hubs will be able to operate independently. Uh, What do you think needs to happen in order to achieve that goal? And what does that future of independent work look like within commons? Yeah, so the with microelectronic commons in the hubs, uh, in order to uh, achieve self-sustainability, it really comes down to just having there be commerce um, back and forth. And, and the government plays one role in that in providing the funds um, you know, on an efficient basis, which we can do through the OTA, but it really comes down to this collaboration between the, the, the leadership of all the hubs, uh, NSTXL, and the federal government to ensure that there are clearly defined 
goals each year and for the five years of, of where all of these hubs need to get to. And then we need to provide the, the resources and the responsiveness to help them build. If we show a demand signal and we show a commitment to getting mm -hmm. to a certain, you know, both point in time um, and level of, of technical efficacy on any technology, history has proven that we can get there and that industry and academia will help us get there. And then you can create those self-sufficient, sustainable ecosystems. And so the commons funds are a great starting point for that to help sort of kickstart that engine, but it's about building that sustainable self-perpetuating engine in the long term. And step one is let's start doing projects. Let's start pulling in innovations. And as we start to create that economy and we create our own domestic demand signals for that economy, mm -hmm. it will reach self-sustainability. Right. And I have no, right. no doubt about that. Right. I've heard Stephanie Lynn, so the new director of microelectronics commons, kind of give the metaphor of commons being like a superintendent for a school system. Like the person that comes in, lays out all the like framework and wireframe, make sure everything's in place. Um, so saying that, like, of course, this was kind of a different structure for a, like a government program. Do you think that this structure is something that's repeatable in other future projects with government? Absolutely. I'm, I'm actually very confident that this becomes the model for large mm -hmm. acquisition programs. Okay. Because when we're, you know, one place where it doesn't get talked about uh, nearly enough, even though it's talked about a lot, but this is how important it is, is we have really fallen behind in our defense industrial base and in our industrial mm -hmm. base in general. We've offshored so much manufacturing, so much technical capability that it's not just about having the facilities to manufacture uh, and fabricate all of these components um, and package them. It's also about having the workforce trained to deliver on that. And that's why the mm -hmm. workforce development is such a big part of the Chips and Science Act, because we've got to start training the next generation of leaders and engineers to be able to produce these technologies once we have the laboratory and the fabrication technology to do it. And mm -hmm. so that's a, a key and important part of, of the structure and the commitment to it's not just about developing the infrastructure. We've got to fill that infrastructure with people that can do the work. And so we've got to actually succeed on both of these to achieve that long term goal. And that's, again, why you've got to have you know, universities involved, you've got to have industry involved, and you've got to have government involved. This is one of those problems that no one sector is going to solve on its own. We need to collaborate and operate efficiently across that, that cycle and across sectors. And if we create that environment that is conducive to this kind of development, then again, I have no doubt that we can achieve mm -hmm. the goals that are set up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So going off that, I mean, Commons is obviously a huge program that will have a really big impact in America and beyond. How do you think that this will impact domestic labor and domestic production? And then going off that, like, what does this mean for the future of America, our economy and otherwise? So you know, in order to train and, and have a workforce to develop, you have to recruit into it. And it's hard to do that when there are no jobs available uh, for for students and 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 um, people who are coming up in their careers to train to do. And so step number one was let's set a demand signal that you know moving forward from here there is going to be a demand for jobs around microelectronics for mm -hmm. manufacturing and development domestically in this country. And then it's working with 
universities, community colleges, high schools, all the way down to really invest in the STEM education and everything we need to start creating that interest. But without the jobs, you're never going to get the, the mm-hmm. workforce. And so, you know, someone had to blink first. Um, it was a tremendous uh, victory for for Congress. One of the you know the few bipartisan things that's really been pulled off in the last year that's truly bipartisan in nature to go ahead and say we're going to blink first. We're going to set the demand signal, and now we need these partnerships to come deliver the workforce. And but you can't have one without the other. And that's another place where the hubs are going to be a key component because they are so rooted in in academic partnerships with industry you need to create that ecosystem and, and that's where it really happens is out in the communities and and the brilliance of having the hub so geographically distributed is there's not one part of the united states that we can't touch with one of the hubs and this really needs to be a national solution with national training and national buy-in and that's what this structure is really aiming to create and I think that there's no better way to create a foundation than the way it's been set up. And now it's time to get to work, start mm-hmm. moving the resources through and the problem statements, start tackling the challenges, and then watch you know, the, the, the ripple effect of what happens with attracting new talent, keeping talent home, and getting you know, kids more interested in mm-hmm. the microelectronic future of the country and careers in that. Yeah, yeah, that's all super exciting. I mean, kind of last question, what what are you most excited about or excited to see in the next years and months with the with the program? It's you know, right now it's most exciting is just to get to work. You know, the mm-hmm. the development process and and getting the the hubs uh, awarded and and up and running has been over a year and a lot of times in in terms of acquisition government that's still relatively quickly. Uh, in mm-hmm. terms of how fast technology is moving, that's slow. And it's it's really exciting to now get to work in mm-hmm. order to start you know, moving the resources, putting the problem statements out, and seeing what our economy and our innovators uh, can, can bring to the solution set. And as we move forward on this, like I said prior, I do think that Microelectronic Commons is going to become a beacon of how solving tough technology challenges, particularly when there's a large acquisition component, not only can be done, but should be done to mm-hmm. ensure that we have the right amount of players, we get the best and the brightest, and we create that environment that is conducive to true collaboration among industry, academia, and government, and that creates a, a vision, um, but also a pipeline to create the solutions necessary to achieve the vision of the goal and, and reassert ourselves as not only you know the economic leader in the world but also the technological and innovation leader across every technology category mm-hmm. and that's and this is really fundamentally step one um, and i'm excited to see this program grow i'm excited to see it uh, succeed but i'm also mm-hmm. excited to see it serve as a, a true model and example of, of how we can be doing it better uh, than our our competitors um, we can be doing it better than we've ever done it before, and that we can use all the elements that we have at our disposal to really deliver on the, the promise of the innovation culture and economy that we've always had. Yeah, great. Well, it's going to be a really exciting couple of years and, and beyond, so I'm looking forward to it too. Thank you so much again for joining. Anything else you wanted to add or mention before we go? I think that covers it, but I appreciate you having me. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I uh, look forward to talking again soon. Have a great week. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.